Today I'm going to be talking about the Siege of Vienna, which was the culmination of two major religious tectonic plates grinding into one another in Southeast Europe. On one side, on one of the tectonic plates, we have the Ottoman Empire, which was the inheritor of the Islamic Caliphate. The Islamic world had gone through multiple iterations of the Caliphate, and the Ottomans were the latest arrivals, and arguably the most successful at expanding their empire. On the other side, we have the Holy Roman Empire, which is led by the chronically inbred royal family known as the Habsburgs. The Holy Roman Empire is the major Christian power that roadblocks the Ottomans from the rest of Christian Europe. The year is 1683. A large Ottoman army of 150,000 soldiers descends on the beleaguered fortified Austrian town of Vienna, which hosts a mere 16,000 troops defending another 30,000 peasants. The Ottomans had been on a more or less non-stop winning streak for five centuries, taking the big regional prize of Constantinople in 1453, which put the final nail in the Greek-speaking Eastern Roman Empire, which we now call Byzantium. That's where we get the song about how, you know, it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. That's what changed, was the Ottomans. They took it over. It's nobody's business but the Turks, as the song says. Constantinople had taken a while to seize because of its massive wall fortifications. The Turks actually had to hire a special artillery guy to bring those walls down. They built these massive cannons to destroy the walls of Constantinople. But before the capture of Constantinople, the Turks had already conquered parts of the Balkans on the other side to the west of Turkey. The Serbs had presented the primary resistance to the Turks, and once they were beaten at the Battle of Kosovo Field in 1389, the Ottomans dominated the region. But the conquest of Constantinople did nothing to satiate the Ottoman drive for expansion and gobbling up new territory for their empire. You see, Ottoman nobles could only prove themselves by annexing new territory as a way to legitimize their rule. In 1522, the Ottomans managed to defeat the Knights Hospitaller and seize the island of Rhodes. The Knights Hospitaller were crusaders who had seized the island from the declining Byzantines. The Ottomans foolishly allowed the surviving Knights to retreat, and would later come to regret this decision when they attempted to take the Knights' new island fortress in Malta. But that's a story for another time. The Ottomans besieged Vienna for the first time in 1529 as part of their campaign to delegitimize Habsburg rule in the area, but a lack of adequate preparation and bad weather crippled their invasion force. Nevertheless, the Ottoman Empire had devastated the Balkan countryside during the invasion and massacred thousands and took many POWs as slaves. The invasion ended effectively in a stalemate, and in the meantime, The Ottomans also seized the major island of Cyprus from the mighty Venetian maritime power in 1570, and then Crete a hundred years later in 1669. All in all, a very successful run for the Ottomans. So, why Vienna? What makes Vienna so special for the Ottomans? Well, control over Vienna made a lot of strategic sense to the Ottomans. They already had total control over the Black Sea area to their north. The Danube is a major tributary river into the Black Sea 
that goes way up into Europe and operates as a river trade route. Vienna was also at the center of land-based trade routes between Ottoman vassals in the eastern Mediterranean and the rest of Europe. The Ottomans had already laid siege to Vienna about 50 years earlier and were solidifying their presence in the Balkans. Now was the time to strike. So the stage was set for another throwdown between the Habsburgs and the Ottomans. And who would side with who during this epic clash didn't necessarily have to do with religious affiliation. It was often more important for kings and princes to pass down their lineage than to support other members of Christendom. Or even to support former allies for that matter. In order to survive, you needed to find out which way the wind was blowing and join that side whenever possible. Plus, neighbors often hate each other more than the people down the block. The Hungarians, for example, hated their neighboring Habsburg rivals, and they came by their hatred pretty honestly. The Habsburgs were doing their best to purge their own territory of any Protestants, including in occupied bits of Hungary itself. The Ottomans seized on this opportunity by providing men, money, and weapons to the Hungarian resistance to the Habsburgs, led by Prince Emmerich Tokoli, who was to be made King of Upper Hungary and Vienna if an Ottoman invasion was successful in kicking out the Habsburgs. The Protestant Hungarians were happy to join up with the Muslim Ottomans to attack their mutual Catholic enemy, the Habsburgs. Of course, being happy to kill your enemies wasn't the same as being enthusiastically proactive, and the Ottomans had to force many of their other Christian and Muslim vassal states to fight alongside them in this massive invasion. There was a long, bloody history to religion in Europe. The Habsburgs ruled over the Holy Roman Empire, a confederation of political entities such as principalities, duchies, and kingdoms. The Holy Roman Empire's territory fluctuated over time, but by the 17th century, the lands were mainly in modern-day Germany and northern Italy. The Habsburgs were reactionary Catholic counter-reformationists who had tried to stamp down the Protestants during the Thirty Years' War, which depopulated huge swaths of their Germanic territory and greatly reduced the power of their empire. In some German towns, as many as two-thirds of the population were dead from the war. It took the death of a third of the entire German population in Europe for the Habsburgs to begrudgingly accept that those heretical Protestants had a right to exist in the northern reaches of their empire. So this is setting the scene into which the Ottomans arrive. The Ottoman invasion was led by a member of the Koprulu family who were hereditary grand viziers to the Sultan. Basically, the Koprulus had collaborated with the Sultans during a time of crisis in the empire a few decades earlier. And as a result, they became intertwined with the ruling class starting in 1656. The invasion force was personally led by an in-law of the Koprulu clan named Kara Mustafa. He used the ongoing clashes between the Holy Roman Empire and the Hungarians as a pretext for war. Since Thakoli's forces were unable to keep Holy Roman Imperial troops out of Hungary, Mustafa convinced the Sultan that Ottoman forces would need to intervene in the conflict to rescue their ally. 
Sultan Mehmet IV granted Mustafa permission to liberate occupied castles in northwestern Hungary, which were about 100 kilometers away from Mustafa's real goal of conquering Vienna. Despite assembling in January of 1682, the Ottoman army wasn't fully mobilized until late summer of the same year. They couldn't move now. Fighting through the winter in the Balkans and Central Europe would be deadly for the troops, many of whom were Mediterranean people unfamiliar with snow and ice. So by April of 1683, over a year later, the Ottomans were finally on the march, and they linked up with their Hungarian allies in Belgrade by May. As promised to the Sultan, Mustafa besieged the castle at Geyer, but the real prize was Vienna, so he moved most of his forces further west. Mustafa was an arrogant man who proved to be incompetent in laying the groundwork for the invasion, by both threatening the enemy, thus ensuring they would fight to the death, and insulting his own vassal states, who then did as little to support Mustafa as they could manage to get away with. The Turks had started out as a nomadic people, nomadic warriors who had grown used to the strategy of demanding total surrender or facing extermination. The great Mongol leader Genghis Khan had used this strategy to great effect as he conquered the known world. But Genghis Khan could back up his threats. The Turks, facing difficult terrain and resistance in conquering Southeast Europe, couldn't as easily execute this strategy as the great Khan. And if you can't back up this strategy with overwhelming force, you'll have two outcomes. If you promise no mercy, your opponents will fight to the death. They will be forced to fight to the last man. And this will grind down your army as it moves through the enemy territory. And if your vassals think that your bark is worse than your bite, they either won't support you or they'll defect to another side at the first opportunity. The Ottomans should have played the European game of flattery and betrayal, but they still had the mindset of hard-scrabble nomadic warriors. The multiple threats of a large heathen empire on Europe's doorstep managed to temper the differences between the European neighbors so that they could unite against a common foe. The Christians had a lot of forewarning. The Ottoman invasion force was a lumbering behemoth of 150,000 men. This is huge for the medieval period. The army took a year to mobilize giving the sympathetic Christian vassals within the Ottoman sphere an opportunity to warn their fellow Christians of the planned invasion. The Ottoman Empire had grown arrogant from victory after victory. They had won countless conquests and suffered no major setbacks for damn near 500 years, and they developed the same arrogance of other long-lasting empires like the Romans. To the point where the Sultan told the Emperor that he and his followers should expect to die in awful, tortuous ways. The Turks had gone from living a rough nomadic existence where their entire livelihood depended on the bow and the horse to a static, comfortable existence in the palaces of Istanbul. Learning to fire a compound bow from horseback 
requires a lifetime of dedication that the Turks no longer required for their lifestyle. They could now raise huge armies from their conquered subjects to do their biddings. The threats of massacre weren't idle either. As the Ottomans marched to Vienna, they massacred the surrendering town of Perchtolsdorf at Vienna's outer limit. Word spread quickly. Vienna would then reject a similar offer of surrender. Arrogance trumped common sense. Yet despite the Ottomans' arrogance, their ally, the Crimean Tartars, who numbered around 40,000, were still compelled to be the first to move on Vienna. This spooked the imperial court in Vienna, who had half as many troops as just these Tartar vassals. The emperor decided to flee, along with 60,000 Viennese residents. The Duke of Lorraine, who was an ally, retreated as well, with 20,000 imperial troops. Why not stay and defend Vienna? I mean, surely you have a better chance if you have all these walls and defenses. Well, if the Ottomans are planning a siege, which seems likely with the large force that they brought, then the 20,000 soldiers and 60,000 residents are going to be a lot of mouths to feed with very little food. And you only need so many men to defend the walls and conduct counter-mining actions because you're concentrating the men in very particular areas of the fortification. If you have any more, then they're just going to have to be in the back of the line. It won't be very useful. Plus, if the Ottomans overwhelm Vienna, you've then lost tens of thousands of soldiers in a hopeless trap. So now the siege begins. The Ottomans arrive a week after their Tartar allies. The Viennese, under Count Ernst Rudger von Sturmherrenberg, mustered around 16,000 troops and a few thousand civilian volunteers to face off against the 150,000 Ottoman army, meaning the defenders could have been easily overwhelmed by just a direct assault with ladders. But for some reason, Kara Mustafa chooses to lay siege to the city instead of storming it. No one is quite sure why he made this decision. He could have had an overly cautious personality and considered a siege to be the least risky strategy for victory. Or more likely, he could have wanted to keep Vienna largely undestroyed to be able to use the city as a bargaining chip in the courtly politics back in Istanbul. Remember, Mustafa is still just a vizier. He's an advisor. He needs all the influence that he can gain to be an equal with the Sultan. Also, if Mustafa had ordered an attack and stormed the city, his troops would have had the right to plunder the wealth of the city. But if he could make them surrender, then he could be the one to distribute the wealth as he saw fit. The Viennese had prepared the battlefield in anticipation of an Ottoman attack by knocking down and clearing the houses outside the city walls 
so that the Ottomans couldn't use the houses for cover. The Ottomans neutralized this killing ground by digging a trench system that allowed their troops to move towards the wall at will. The Ottomans dug trenches progressively closer to the walls so that their sappers, basically tunnel diggers, could get close enough to dig under the walls and then blow them up. Sapping is far more effective than cannons to bring down walls. With a cannon, you get a small ball transferring its energy to a small part of a wall. If it causes some damage, the wall can be repaired. Or, if it can't be easily repaired, there's plenty of time between the cannon shots for the defenders to build a secondary wall behind the damaged section. But with sapping, the attacker can place a huge amount of gunpowder under a section of the wall and completely destroy it with a massive, concentrated explosion that also undermines the entire foundation of the fortification. But the Viennese had counter-sappers. They dug tunnels to intercept and detonate the Ottoman gunpowder barrels before they could set them off and destroy the fortifications. Oftentimes, this involved the opposing groups of sappers digging into each other's tunnels and battling melee style in the dark. The Ottomans had a large force of 5,000 sappers and they were able to blow up some sections along the wall, but the Viennese responded with new walls further back inside the city. The fortifications were holding, but the Viennese knew the Ottomans were now close enough that they may have to fall back to within the city proper and resort to fighting in the streets. Let's lay out the situation for the Viennese defenders. The northeast side of the city is protected by the Danube River, The southeast and south sides are protected by the Vienna River. This leaves the western side for an attack. There were three primary Viennese defenses facing the Ottoman camp. On the right flank was the Lobel Bastion. In the center was the Berg Ravelin. And on the left was the Berg Bastion. The bastions were basically triangular forts built into the city walls. A Ravelin is basically a smaller fortification outside the city walls. It's a triangle with a wall on the side facing the enemy and is open on the side facing the main city wall. But the Ottomans had to contend with a much deadlier enemy than the Viennese garrison. We're talking waterborne diseases. 150,000 soldiers living without proper sanitation for weeks on end in trenches made muddy and disease-ridden by the summer rains. Avoiding illness was damn near impossible. Soldiers were constantly living in and drinking a combination of shit and blood water while being bitten by rats, mosquitoes, and fleas. Not that Vienna was much better off. The population was starving, and soldiers struggled to find the energy to keep fighting. If the Ottomans hadn't threatened total extermination, the Viennese might have surrendered at this point. But they had no incentive to surrender, because they knew they'd just be tortured and then murdered. The sight of tens of thousands of hopeless hostages held by the Ottomans hammer home this message. Best case, 
They'd live out the remainder of their lives as miserable slaves back in the Ottoman Empire. So without any other option, the Viennese continued the fight. Starvation leads to fatigue, which leads to sleepiness. So Count von Sternhanberg, being a cold-blooded nobleman, decreed that any soldier caught sleeping on watch duty was to be executed for dereliction of duty. That was the morale boosting of the Habsburg forces. Meanwhile, the Holy Roman Empire and the Kingdom of Poland were trying to assemble a counterforce. You have to keep in mind that these people are suspicious of each other, and they have big egos. For one, who would pay for this large army? And who would be in charge of it? These were matters that needed to be settled ahead of time. John Sobieski, the King of Poland, would be chief commander, since he had previous experience battling and beating Ottoman armies. Poland would need to pay for their own soldiers, who made up about a third of the force, until those soldiers crossed into Holy Roman Imperial territory, at which point the empire would pay for their salaries, as well as the salaries of the two-thirds of the rest of the relief force. While the Poles had to pay for their own troops before crossing into the empire's territory, they would be compensated with the right of first plunder of the Ottoman camp should the relief forces be victorious. The relief army was driven by unity of purpose to relieve Vienna and put aside their old rivalries to defeat the Turk on the field of battle. The Holy Roman Empire tapped into all available resources and contacts, like government funds, loans from wealthy financiers, and even the Pope himself, who had a real incentive to keep the Ottomans away from Rome and to keep Vienna a Catholic city. The Ottomans placed the Hungarians under Thakoli on the road to Vienna at Bisenberg, a mere five kilometers to the northwest of the siege, in order to block any relief force. The Hungarians were soundly defeated by the returning imperial troops under the Duke of Lorraine. He was coming back for vengeance. In addition, Mustafa's arrogance had tangible effects on other allies. The Crimean Tartars, who were the first to arrive at the gates of Vienna, had been tasked with intercepting any relief force. Yet when the relief force was at its most vulnerable, while crossing the Danube River on fragile pontoon bridges, the Tartars chose to stay back. The Ottoman sappers destroyed large sections of the walls between the bastions. By September 8, the Ottomans had seized the Ravelin and were well poised to invade the city. The Viennese garrison was preparing for the final showdown. Since they knew that they would be given no mercy, the Viennese knew this would be a battle to the death in the streets of Vienna. But four days after the Ottomans had seized the Ravelin and were preparing for the final attack on Vienna, the relief forces arrived. The relief force entered the Vienna woods north of the city unopposed. After two months of siege, the city was desperately starving. The relief force reached the Kallenberg Hill overlooking Vienna in the dead of night and lit great bonfires to intimidate the besiegers and rouse the spirits of the starving besieged. The Ottomans still had the numbers on their side, though. The Ottomans had lost some men to combat and disease, 
but they still had an army about double the size of the relief force. The Viennese garrison was holding on by a thread. Mustafa now had a choice to make. He could blow the last charges under the walls of Vienna and storm into the city to gain a better defensive position. Or he could turn around and use his full military might to overwhelm the relief force. Instead of picking one or the other, he decides to do both. He divides his sickly, tired force into three main groups. One group to massacre the 30,000 peasants they were holding hostage. Another group of the best troops to attack the city of Vienna. And a weaker but larger group to engage the relief force. The battle for Vienna began early. The Ottoman army attempted to disrupt the relief force in the morning darkness before they could fully assemble for an attack. The Duke of Lorraine pushed back against the Ottomans and seized the fortified villages of Heiligenstadt and Neusdorf near the left bank of the Danube. By midday, the Ottoman army had been badly battered by imperial forces, but the Ottomans still held together and were able to launch a counterattack with the bulk of their force. Mustafa sent his elite Janissary infantry and Sapahi cavalry to attack the city of Vienna at the same time. It was not supposed to work out this way. The Ottomans should have been inside Vienna by now, so that they would have had a fortified position to support their army. The Ottoman attempt to blow up the Lobel Bastion had failed, since the Viennese sappers had intercepted the Ottoman mines and disabled them, leaving a frontal assault through the crumbling walls as the Ottomans' only option. By the afternoon, the Polish infantry had positioned themselves on the right flank of the relief force and began to attack the Ottomans. Since the elite Ottoman troops were busy trying to take Vienna, the Poles were able to seize the village of Gerstov about 12 hours into the battle. The main Ottoman force was now being squeezed on both flanks. The Poles moved their cavalry into position at their newly liberated village of Gerstov while the Germans took the village of Oder-Dobling. Both of these villages were near the main Ottoman line. As the Germans prepared to hack their way into the Ottomans, they spotted and were inspired by the Polish cavalry moving into position and skirmishing with the Ottomans on the right flank. Many of the Ottomans' allies, who also spotted the Polish cavalry, began their retreat from the battlefield and abandoned the siege altogether. The Ottomans' Christian vassals from Moldavia and Wallachia either surrendered or retreated. Mustafa, realizing that his position was now untenable, retreated to his HQ further south. And thus began the largest recorded cavalry charge in human history. What follows is one of the greatest moments in military history, and something out of a Tolkien novel. Imagine the ride of the Rohirrim, or Gandalf's charge at Helm's Deep. Most battles aren't like movies. Most battles are confusion, smoke, and chaos. But the charge of the winged hussars was an epic sight to behold. 20,000 horse soldiers charging down hills, gathering momentum with lances ready to deliver killing blows to these second-rate Ottoman troops. 
The Polish cavalry had wooden boards covered in feathers so that they appeared as a charging army of Valkyries. The King of Poland personally led the vanguard of 3,000 heavy cavalry. The charge smashed into the Ottoman lines and kicked off a general retreat of Ottoman soldiers. The cavalry then pushed forward to seize the Ottoman HQ. Under pressure from the largest cavalry charge in history, the poorly led Ottoman army was completely routed. Only the elite of the army remained, which comprised the 10,000 strong Janissary infantry and Sepahi cavalry. The half-starved Viennese defenders seized the momentum of the relief force's total victory on the battlefield, and they charged out of the walls against this remaining force at the Ottoman camp. Despite having been starved for two months and losing half their population to combat, disease, and starvation, the garrison fervently stabbed, slashed, and hacked their way into the Ottomans. With no more support, even the elite Ottoman troops were forced to retreat. Mustafa was soundly defeated. The Ottomans lost tens of thousands of men during the siege, battle, and retreat considerably less than the few thousand killed on the side of the relief force. The relief force divided up the Ottoman loot, and then they pursued the attackers. The hunter had become the hunted. The relief force invaded northwest Hungary, where a small Ottoman force had stayed behind to battle the relief force in coordination with their ally, Prince Thokoli of Hungary. The main Ottoman force continued its retreat back to their regional capital in Belgrade. The Polish dragoons, basically horse soldiers with pistols, decided to attack the Ottomans ahead of their main relief force, but they were ambushed before they could even light the matchlocks on their pistols, and they suffered heavy casualties as, as a result and they were forced to retreat back to the main force. The main force, though, finally reached the Hungarian town of Parkany. All the big players of Vienna were here. The Duke of Lorraine, the King of Poland, and von Starhemberg, the commander at Vienna. The Imperial and Polish armies dealt a decisive blow to the Ottomans and their Hungarian allies. But the Poles, discouraged by the spread of dysentery and the defeat of their dragoons, settled for this final victory, and returned back home with the Ottoman loot. Sobieski, for his troubles, was granted the title Defender of the Faith by the Pope, and the Austrians built a church in his honor on the Kallenberg Hill above Vienna. The Imperial Army continued south in hot pursuit of the main Ottoman force, and they defeated the Ottomans several more times seizing southern Hungary, Belgrade, and large swaths of Serbia and Transylvania in a war that would last another 15 years. In 1699, the two sides finally signed a peace treaty. Mustafa returned to Belgrade with his tail between his legs. He was rightly judged as the reason that the campaign had failed. The commander of the Janissaries judged that the vizier's incompetent leadership merited the death penalty and ordered an execution fit for a nobleman, strangulation by a silk rope. 
Three major powers involved in this siege all had depressing 18th century futures. The battle marked the beginning of the end for the Ottoman Empire. Their 500-year-long streak of victories had come to a close. The next 250 years would see their empire chipped away bit by bit until its total dissolution after the First World War. The Holy Roman Empire ended up splitting apart. The north became Germany, centered around Prussia and the east, and the south became the multi-ethnic monstrosity run by inbred Habsburg royalty known as the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which specialized in being terrible at warfare, until it too was broken apart after the First World War, just like the Ottoman Empire. Poland fared no better, but fell even quicker. A little less than a century later, a series of partitions by its neighbors divided it and absorbed Poland into oblivion. This was the fate of the kingdom that would defend the faith.